It's a joy to gather. It's a joy to sing. Thank you for leading us so well. You know, if you're visiting with us here this morning, we're working our way through John's gospel. If John chapter 17 is Mount Everest, and it really is, then John chapter 6 is K2. I didn't know what K2 was. I had to ask the staff during the week to please find out for me what the second largest mountain in the world was. And it's K2. If that's the case, then John 7 seems like a very low valley. And in John chapter 7, we see the escalation that occurred in John 6. We see that coming more and more to fruition where our Lord is abandoned. He's alone. People are saying that he leads people astray. Others are saying, no, no, he's, he's a good man. And so we're in an interesting passage of scripture this morning. In many ways, it's difficult to know what to do with it. But I trust that God will bless our time together. So I'd love if you would join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and acknowledge that you are good and holy and worthy and sovereign and majestic and glorious and loving and kind and holy. And Father, we come together as your people, redeemed by the precious blood of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so we come, as it were, as a spiritual kingdom clothed in white robes given to us by your beloved Son. So unworthy are we, Lord, and so holy are you. We thank you for your love that you shed abroad in our hearts by your Spirit that caused us to be born again to a new and living hope, to no longer live in the kingdom of darkness, but to proclaim the excellencies having been transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father, we're journeying along in the gospel of your servant John as your beloved Son is in hostile ground. And so, Lord, would you take your word and teach us truth, apply to us truth, that we might no longer live in such a feeble and common way. Help us to break free of any religiosity that is cool and callous. We long to behold more of your glory, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. In our passage this morning, we're going to consider John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. If you were with us last Lord's Day, we considered the verse 13 verses where we saw 
that Jesus delayed his entry into Jerusalem because the people of Jerusalem wanted to kill him. Namely, the religious leaders wanted to take his life. And his brothers urged him to go up into Jerusalem and show himself because his brothers believed that the path to true greatness was the path of popularity and comfort and applause. But that's not the way or the path for the Savior and those who follow Him. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to begin to see more of what it was like for our Lord as He entered into this Feast of Booths. You remember He delayed the entry to the Feast of Booths, the most popular feast of all three that the Jews were to go up into Jerusalem and celebrate. He delayed that entry. But we'll see His arrival this morning. And there's five moving parts, cogs in the mechanics, if you will, of this portion of Scripture. I want us to walk through it, apply a little bit as we go, and then make some pertinent application at the end. And so let's just begin here in verse 14 with what we can call, if you're taking notes, the setting. The first thing we see is the setting in verse 14. Look there with me in your Bibles. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Jesus waited until the feast was halfway through before going to this feast of booths. And then he just enters the temple. One may ask, well, how do you know it's actually the middle? Well, interestingly enough, in the Greek, the Verb there in verse 14 means literally to be located between two points, the middle. Why the middle here for Jesus? Why not the start or why not the end? Well, I think the start would have been too hectic. People wanted to kill him. The crowds were all around. At the end, well, do not forget that going to the feast was a matter of law And so Jesus is keeping the law in order that there might be a righteousness amassed by his living as he lived the law, kept the law, so that his people can then be clothed with a righteousness that's not their own. And so if Jesus went at the end of the feast, he wouldn't keep the law. He wouldn't be an altogether appropriate and fitting savior. And so the middle is good timing. The middle is good timing. The middle of the feast is when Jesus can accomplish both the keeping of the requirements of the festival. You remember this festival was seven days of camping. It would have been a lot of fun. You and your family would have made shelters out of branch. You would have lived in there. You would have bought in the grapes and the olives. And then the final eighth day, there was this solemn assembly. And so Jesus accomplishes the keeping of the requirements of the law. But what's important to note is that even though Jesus went up, as it were, in private, as verse 10 of chapter 7 told us, he in no way goes up to Jerusalem to attend this feast 
and remains hidden or simply just tucked away in obscurity. No, he went up to disclose himself to all and as we'll see this morning, to defend himself to all. You see, going into the temple was about as public as you could get. And so the setting is the temple during the most popular feast, as I said. The temple was not a private place. It was also a place where rabbis would go up and teach. They would gather in little groups with their disciples or they would rise up and teach the thousands upon thousands who were in those temple courts. And so Jesus in no way is making obscurity his goal. He's making obedience his aim. Obedience to the Father. Timing was everything and moving only in the Father's timing was everything. Obedience to God's will is everything. Regardless of how one feels or regardless of how one thinks. You see, even though the throngs of people had flocked to Jesus initially, we saw that in the beginning of John, they have since walked away from Him, including His own brothers, His own household, rejecting the claims that He was the Messiah. You say, well, you know, His family didn't really walk away from Him, they were still with Him. No, no, do you not remember that Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. And so his own brothers were rejecting his claims that he was the true Messiah. They were not willing to forsake all and follow after him. The people, though, they still knew who he was. And so being recognizable, he could have been stopped easily by the leaders on the way up to Jerusalem. But instead, God's, the Father's wisdom and God the Father's plan is much better. Jesus, in lockstep with that, arrives able to then teach in the most public setting and the most public manner possible. Look over at verse 32 with me for a moment of chapter 7. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things, these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him here? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That was the response to Jesus' teaching inside the temple here at the Feast of Booths. You know, this was also the common response to Jesus' teaching earlier too in His ministry. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28, the end of the Sermon on the Mount says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at His teaching. Matthew 13 54 says, and coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Matthew chapter 22 verse 33 says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished 
at his teaching. Mark in his gospel repeatedly says the same thing too. Our passage this morning makes no mention of the content of Jesus' teaching inside the temple this day. To detail that was not fitting with John the Apostle's purpose for this gospel. But what we do see and what we will see is quite significant. That is, that the hearers of Jesus' teaching, who were the general public and the Jewish leaders up there for the feast, they are presented with a dramatic choice. And some of you here this morning are going to be presented with a drastic and dramatic choice. Will Jesus be to you the Savior of the world and the one from whom you find peace and joy? Or will Jesus be the one to you who says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness? You see, a church our size, there are going to be people who are going to make a choice on this side of the grave and face the consequences that on the other side. Christ is either all to you and from which you draw down joy and peace in the midst of heartache or he's nothing to you. He's just a trinket. It's a dramatic choice that these hearers be faced with. And for them, what I mean by that is, according to the law of God in Deuteronomy 18, the Jewish people were either to embrace a true prophet. In fact, Deuteronomy 18 says, you either embrace this true prophet or I will judge you, Yahweh says. Or Deuteronomy 18 says to them, you are to kill a false prophet. But what we're going to see here is that these Jewish leaders had made shipwreck of the keeping of the law, of the understanding of the law, and they were bound up instead in a heartless, cold, and hypocritical religiosity. Some of us here are bound up in the same. And so there Jesus was inside the temple, a very large area with inner and outer courts, open porticos and the like, and it was just packed. But you know, this wasn't the first time Jesus had been inside the temple. You remember, the vast majority of John's gospel is devoted to the last week, not the three years. This wasn't the first time. In fact, the last time that Jesus was in the temple... Earlier on in his earthly ministry, he'd gone into the temple and witnessed what? The money changes. The religious and political elite profiting off temple practices, worship practices. And so we know there, Jesus cleared the temple with a whip. He overturned the tables. He sent them all packing. And so at the right time, in accordance with the Father's plan, 
Jesus is back inside the temple to the surprise of everyone. You see, the wisdom of God in having him not listen to the unbelieving counsel of his unbelieving brothers, but always being about doing the will of his Father, and caused him to arrive right at the right time, able to be effective and accomplish all that God had set him to do. If you and I listen to the counsel of the unbeliever, and we don't do what our Lord did, we'll be given to hasty, rash decisions in our life that will have us out of step with our Father's will. And Jesus arrives, as I said, to the surprise of everyone, including no doubt his unbelieving brothers, whom he said, I'm not coming up just yet. And no doubt the Jewish and political and religious leaders who hate him so much and just want him dead. And Jesus just appears in the temple and begins to teach the throngs of people. You can imagine the scene. And when I think about this setting, I think about what's going on here, I can't escape the word courage. I can't escape it. Our Savior was kind and compassionate and very, very courageous. And so the first piece in the teaching in the temple we see is the setting. Jesus teaching the masses of people, thousands most likely. The second thing we see here in this little portion of 10 verses, 14 to 24, is what we could call the source. The setting and now the source in verses 15 to 17. Look there with me in your Bibles. The Jews then were astonished. Fancy that. Saying, look what they say, how has this man become learned having never been educated? They were genuinely puzzled. In the other Gospels I just mentioned, Matthew and Mark, the astonishment and the amazement and the bewilderment and the puzzlement came about due to the authority that Jesus taught with. Each and every other mention in all the other Gospels, the astonishment comes from the authority that Jesus spoke with. Whereas here, in our passage, the astonishment comes from Jesus being able to teach what He did without being formally trained in their elite rabbinic schools, which were liberal hell houses, by the way. Not dislike some of the Bible colleges and seminaries that exist in our day. This is the carpenter's son. He didn't go to school. He didn't go to the school like the other men who teach around here. How on earth does he know all this stuff? Is what they would have been saying. You see, any competent teacher of the Scripture was first trained in the rabbinical training centers or taught by some of the leading rabbis, and they knew Jesus wasn't, and He wasn't. And so they really marvel. 
But I want you to know they do so with utter hatred and utter contempt upon their lips. Look what they say. This man. There's contempt in that. This man. This uneducated man. You know, I made mention last week that John the Apostle loves to highlight and emphasize irony throughout his gospel. He really does. Irony here at the highest again from the Apostle John because you have the incarnate word, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being being of one substance with the Father, being confronted by the spiritually dead religious hypocrites and told that he is an uneducated peasant boy. That's irony. And so now, we see that Jesus defends himself. He did that a number of times when he was attacked. And you know, now we as ambassadors, we really pick up that mantle and defend the Lord Jesus too, as we minister the word in season and out of season. We don't want to be about preaching ourselves or defending ourselves, but we preach and defend the Lord Jesus. You remember what John wrote in what's called the prologue of this gospel? Prologue is the first 18 verses of chapter 1. The prologue serves as a very special way. It's a condensed form of writing all that will go on to occur in the remainder of the gospel. In fact, as we journey through this gospel, if you go back and read the first 18 verses, you'll see the remarkable way in which that occurs. But John the Apostle wrote in verse 11 of John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And to those who rejected him, He often gave a defense of his teaching. And when he did so, the defense was not always for the benefit of those hypocritical religious leaders, but it was often for the benefit for the general public and the disciples who were watching on. You see, the religious leaders were wise and learned in their own eyes. And they already had their reward in full. Remember Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, but have revealed them to infants. Jesus now here defends his teaching and replies to their question in verse 15. He replies in verse 16, look there. And he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That answer from Jesus, as Jim Boyce once said, stresses the enormous gulf that exists between human teaching and that which is divine In origin, the rabbis of the day and still certainly today really were not fans of anything novel or original. 
the rabbis simply just quoted other rabbis and spent more time writing extra biblical oral laws which were filled with quotes of other rabbis than anything else. In fact, if you go to Israel, I haven't been there, some of you have, I want to go. If you go to Israel and find a Jewish person there and begin to ask them what is meant by Isaiah 53, which we know is just the most glorious prophecy of our Lord, they will go and tell you, I'll come back to you. They'll go ask their rabbi. Their rabbi will tell you that is not about the glorious Savior. That is about the city of Jerusalem. And that interpretation is from the pit of hell. But Jesus comes along. And he teaches the true intent of the law. The true meaning of the prophets. And so while it was not original in the sense it was what God had already revealed in his word, it was original in that God in the person and teaching of Christ was bringing truth to light. Never has a man spoken like this man. And Jesus did not say there was not any need for external wisdom and knowledge. Instead, he appealed that his teaching has as its source the highest authority and reliability, namely God the Father himself. As a preacher, I know I need external wisdom and knowledge. I can remember one of my preaching professors at seminary grew up in the in the Plymouth Brethren, not like the exclusive Brethren rebranded themselves here, but the true Plymouth Brethren grew up there. And he would tell us in preaching class, oh, my father, he, he never prepared a sermon. I remember saying, sorry, what? And he said, because my grandfather, did I say father? My grandfather it was. He said, my grandfather said, I never prepared a sermon because if I prepared, then the devil would know what I was going to say. We need external wisdom and knowledge. But we need wisdom from God Himself and knowledge from God Himself. One of the things about all the false religions in the world, they are void of true wisdom and knowledge from God. It's just one guru speaking to another guru, making a whole other bunch of gurus. When you think about it, for certain, all the prophets, though, prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, they did all speak, thus saith the Lord, right? But Jesus is greater than them all. Why? Because He alone is one with the Father, sharing in the same essence of the Father. And He always, as He said back in verse 19 of John chapter 5, he, he said the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Hebrews chapter, two, verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know that very well. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us in His Son. The rabbis spoke from rabbinical tradition, but Jesus, as the ultimate rabbi, if you will, spoke from God's tradition. 
Praise God that Jesus' teaching did not originate from man, but had as its very source the Father of all truth in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. You know, later on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, Jesus says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In verse 17 now of John 7 though, Jesus now builds upon the similar idea that he taught earlier in John chapter 6 verse 44. That is that mankind does not possess any ability at all to be in a saving relationship with God unless God works a work in man first. He does that by saying in verse 17, look there, and this is just a fascinating phrase, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching that he just taught in the synagogue, whether it is of God or whether I merely just speak from my, myself, just from what you see before you, a man. Jesus is saying, my teaching is not something that can be learned in your rabbinical schools by the experts. Instead, and I want you to look carefully again at what Jesus said in verse 17. He says... Well, he doesn't say, if anyone does God's will, he will know whether or not the teaching is true or not. He doesn't say that. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will. Why is that important? Well, it's really important to grasp what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that there needs to be some type of moral, ethical preparation that a person needs to do before they're able to receive the gospel or receive the truth of God in the person of Christ revealed in the scripture. Because even though John doesn't give us the content of what Jesus taught about in the temple, you can, for lack of a much better term, because who likes gambling, you can bet your bottom dollar that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and entry into that kingdom and repentance and faith and how he is the savior of the world and how one can partake of the eternal life that he is as the bread of life and so on and so forth. Jesus does not mean to say here that if you clean yourself up then you'll be ready in order to understand the truth. You could really twist this verse here in verse 17 and preach a very dangerous moralism that says to people, come and if you just clean up your life a little bit, then you can become a Christian. That's not how the gospel works, is it? Please say no. If you're saying yes, I won't... (laughs) (laughs) No, I know you understand this. 
You see, Reformed theology has rightly taught that there are no antecedent, meaning prior, conditions one needs to fulfill in order to believe the truth of Jesus and what he teaches. That would be contrary to the gospel itself that says freely come, freely rest, freely receive, and freely trust in Christ for salvation, which includes what Jesus is really driving at here, which includes the ability to understand the revelation of Scripture, the truth of who God is. Jesus is saying that those willing to obey God receive the truth to their souls. And that only happens when a person is willing. You say, what? Good. Because that determination to obey God and thus to do His will is not simply something that is accomplished morally or even ethically in the ultimate sense. It is something that is laid hold of by faith. By faith. And that faith, therefore, must be gifted to you by God. And thus, having been granted the gift of faith, that person then receives and understands Jesus' teaching. The natural man cannot understand the truth of God, says 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, left in a natural, unbelieving state, there is no willing to do the will of God. And so something has to happen to a person's will in order for them to be willing. So it's to the ones who receive the Spirit and truth who are made willing, who will see that Jesus is the truth and long to live for the will of God. I want to apply this here just for a moment. We who have been made willing in the day of God's power when He showered us with grace, we have received much and we ought not forget what we have received. But more than simply not just forget or even worse, lose our first love, we must press on into the will of God and attain more of God. If, if those who are made willing receive the truth of the gospel and are made new and enter into newness of life, how much more must those who have entered into newness of life continue to press on into the will of God so as to know and receive more of God? The purpose of the gospel of John is so that one might believe and then have life in his name. That is, keep on believing as they keep on beholding the glory of God. Jesus here is exemplifying a learned mind. We need to lay hold of a learned mind so as to navigate the areas in life that we need courage. Hearkening back to the first point. 
to be courageous, you need knowledge. If you strive to be courageous without knowledge, you are foolish. We need a learned mind pressing into the will of God with the courage that our Savior exemplified just so as to be a Christian. So as to navigate work and the trials of our life, financial, health, marital, whatever they may be. And so first we saw the setting of Jesus' teaching. Here we saw the source of Jesus' teaching. It comes from His Father. Third, we see now what we can call the splendor in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This, this is a staggering verse. This makes me want to be very careful, and I felt the weight of it even as I came into the pulpit this morning. Jesus is saying, I'm not bound up in my own ego. You ask any pastor who preaches Lord's Day to Lord's Day. In fact, I tried to get myself into a habit because you're very kind to me so often. You say, thank you, that was such a great helpful sermon. And I remember years ago I thought, well, you can't be false. You can't display false humility. What do you do with it? And I often say to you, it's just a great text. And I'm trying to say thank you so much, but it's a great text. Because every person and every preacher and every pastor has an ego. But Jesus has no such thing to be bound up in. Like man's teaches, mankind speaks from himself, man seeks his own glory. Jesus is saying, you should be able to verify what I'm saying because I'm different. I'm different. I'm not like man. I'm not seeking to advance my own glory or can you pat your own ego? Oh, how our Lord differs from the false prophets who we read about in Ezekiel 34, verse 2 and 3, that says, Woe, shepherds of Israel have been feeding themselves. Should the shepherds not feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you searched for the lost. Oh, how Jesus is so different to you and I. We carry ego and offenses. Jesus is so different. 
man so often just works for his own, but Jesus is altogether not like that because he works for the one who sent him, his father. There's a beauty and a splendor in this, in being united to the one who is trustworthy and without mixed motives. Every single person alive will disappoint you. I've already done that to you. I could say you've done that to me. We do it to each other, but you know what? Jesus never does. What a joy to be united to one who is altogether trustworthy and never disappoints. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. Look what Jesus says about himself. I can't say this about me, and you can't say this about you. He says, he is true, I am true, and there is no unrighteousness in him, in me, he says. I can't say that. I want you to imagine just for a moment if Jesus gave in to those pragmatic, worldly urgings and impulses and requests of his unbelieving brothers that we saw last week. I want you to imagine if Jesus gave in to that. Imagine he bent to that and accommodated the ego of the brothers because the brothers surely wanted their brother to go up and be the one who displays himself to the entire nation by working miracles and says, I am the savior of the world. We can't think for a moment that the brothers didn't want to buy into that. But he doesn't. And he wouldn't. Give in to their request. Because he's true to the Father's divine plan, and therefore, if he's true to the Father's divine plan, you can trust Jesus with everything in your life. Do you understand me? Jesus condemned the Jewish leaders because they sought their own glory. And in the seeking of your own glory is a certain result in your life. It's just one of unrighteousness and dishonor. But to be following the one who says about himself that he is true and that he is righteous... Unlike man, is so precious and so important to do. You know, Jesus did not come to be served, did he? But to serve, unlike man. You know, we read about Jesus that he is gentle and humble in heart, unlike man. We read that Jesus, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. 
unlike you and I. We read that Jesus washed the feet of his enemies. So often unlike you and I. We have such a glorious and splendorous Savior who we would do well to not only trust in, but also rejoice in. And rest in. And get this, run to. We need to do those things. I need to do these things. What we think of when we see here from Jesus is that he is selfless. We are selfish. We are prone to wander. He is never wayward. And he will never, ever forsake us or let us go. We need to draw closer still to our Savior Jesus and quit seeking glory from anything or anyone else other than the one who is himself glory revealed. Well, the next cog in this narrative is found in verses 19 to 23 under a heading that doesn't sound nice, the scolding. We jump pretty quick from the splendor to the scolding. But look at verse 19 with me. And this scolding of sorts is a two-way street. The people really scold Jesus and Jesus scolds them too. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to them, Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? It's here we see that this courage of Jesus and this divine source of his teaching and who Jesus is just pressing forward, pressing into a matter, not simply avoiding things but confronting them head on. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? You all break the law, even though you pride yourself on being followers of Moses. They loved Moses. They were prideful that it was they who received the law of Moses, and they kept the law, they thought. And Jesus comes along and says, you break the law. You know, when I dwelt upon this, I thought to myself, we have a Savior who says things that need to be said. Yes, He knew the perfect way. You and I often don't know the perfect way nor the perfect timing. But we have a Savior who says the things that need to be said. Jesus says to them here, you proclaim to be the receivers of the law, the teachers of the law to the nation of Israel, and you uphold the law, but you're seeking to what? Kill me. 
thou shall not kill. I trust you see this. The law was given so as to reveal sin, but these people were so blind to the sin of wanting to kill someone and how that's breaking God's law. There is a significant warning here about religious legalism. That even we who are regenerate but carry around a body of flesh can be given to. We can so easily look at these religious leaders and say, the glaring hypocrisy and irony that they were so prideful that they upheld the law while trying to kill someone who's in that breaking the law, that we can be blind to our own sin while we call out the sin of others. This is what we can be given to. Very good at calling out the sin of other people. Very poor at seeing the sin in ourselves. He scolds them here in verse 19. Because here stood the one who could remove them from the curse of the law, free them from the burden of the law, but they were seeking to take his life. Now, evidencing just how twisted and callous their hearts were, not just the leaders, but now the crowds of people, the public, they respond in verse 20. Look there. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Let that sink in for a moment. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Mark it down. You address sin in a prideful heart. And that prideful heart in that person will attack you with scorn and slander and name-calling. The millennials now have a term called gaslighting. This is gaslighting and its finest right here. I'll give you the definition. These people say to Jesus, no one's trying to kill you. You have a demon. That is, you're out of your mind. That's what gaslighting is. Manipulating someone to think that they're wrong. Who seeks to kill you? I want you to think about it. Verse 1 of John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus was not wanting to go to the feast because people were wanting to kill him. Now look at verse 25 of John 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? The leaders were already prior to this whole event conspiring to kill Jesus. That had leaked. The people knew it. The cat was out of the bag. 
And so Jesus here, the truth, calls sin, sin, and the sinful heart will seek to dodge it. The sinful heart will seek to dodge it, and the sinful heart will resent the accusation, vehemently defending itself. Oh, how thankful we can be for Jesus who freed us from being enslaved to such a thing. We don't live in perfection. We still fight it and we must fight it because we have a fleshly disposition toward doing this as well. But what a joy to be free from the curse of the law. And a heart that was altogether given to sin. May we continue to be on guard against pride in our own hearts. Nonetheless. In verse 21 now, after the public just said the terrible things, you have a demon, no one seeks to kill you, Jesus answered them all and said, look, I did one deed and you all marvel. Jesus now begins to drive at the heart of their hypocrisy by hearkening back to a particular event. You know what this event is? This one deed that Jesus did that they all marveled at? It was an event that took place on the Sabbath. And Jesus in a moment is about to mention the Sabbath here in John 7. But back in John chapter 5, you remember that Jesus healed a man who for 38 years couldn't walk. And he laid by the pool of Bethesda there. Do you remember what the man did after Jesus healed him? What did he do? He took his little bed thing and where did he go? He went to the temple. He would have ran to the temple. So he's healed, he gets up and he walks or power walks or runs to the temple. And what did these same religious Jews say to him when he walked in the temple? Well, I'll tell you what they didn't say. They didn't say, wow. For almost 40 years, you couldn't walk and now you can walk. Praise God. I'll tell you what they did say. You can't carry that bed on the Sabbath. Look at verse 22. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. And then John adds, and Jesus adds, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. That is, the circumcision was instituted through the patriarchs, Abraham and the like. He says, for this reason Moses has given you circumcision, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You don't mess with Jesus. Jesus is saying to them, the law says to circumcise a boy on the eighth day of his life. But, What do you do if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? 
Well, you circumcise. You still circumcise the boy. You see, acts of necessity and acts of mercy were permitted on the Sabbath. The law to circumcise overshadowed the Mosaic law of keeping the Sabbath unhindered, if you will. Jesus is saying to them, you had no hesitation in carrying out a minor nick of the flesh on the Sabbath. But you want to kill me for doing a major work of healing a complete person on the Sabbath. Please note that Jesus is not saying the Sabbath was not important under the Mosaic Covenant or trying to belittle it in any way. He was simply showing them they have no warrant for the wrath they have against Him. Their hatred is without cause, we read. This is all such an expose of religious hypocrisy. Deep resentment toward the truth, deadly blindness to their own sin. And in light of that, Jesus calls them to abandon their particular way of living. And what I mean by that is found in our fifth and final heading and the final verse here in verse 24. Look there. Under the heading, we could call this superficiality, just so we make sure we have five S's and it's five times blessed in heaven. Look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So much for thou shalt not judge is the 11th commandment. Jesus here calls us to judge. But he's saying this to them. Since you have not had your wills made willing by the grace of God, you have no way of judging a matter correctly. They were simply looking outwardly. They were not looking carefully, assessing what was before them or in the word of God. Man's ways will always miss the true intent of God's ways and God's will. Man needs divine intervention and divine truth to discern God's ways and God's will. And as man does that, or receives that rather, man will avoid superficiality and harsh judgmental religiosity and hypocrisy. Sadly, the stubbornness and the seeking of their own glory resulted in these religious leaders only continuing all the way until they get their wish where they kill the one who is true and the one in whom there is no unrighteousness. And so how do we tie this all together? How do we tie it all together? Well, to do that, I want us to come back again to the purpose of this gospel. Because these things, this passage was written so that one might believe, and then believing, have life in his name, and keep on believing. We are justified by faith, and in many ways we are sanctified by faith. We believe under salvation, and we keep on believing 
for our sanctification. Revealed to us here in our passage is the truth of God in the person of Jesus. Revealed to us here in our passage is that God can only be known through this man, Jesus Christ, who revealed that he is trustworthy and from God himself. You must trust in him today to be reconciled to God. Today must be the day of your salvation. It's August. The year will soon be over. But you know what? Your life may soon be over. You must trust in Jesus this moment if you can hear my voice. Just trust in him today. Receive newness of life, peace with God, joy unsurpassable, supernatural. Doesn't mean life won't be easy. Doesn't mean life will be easy. There's enough truth and revelation in this passage alone to compel you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to the one who is courageous, learned from God, trustworthy, able to free you from the curse and burden and hostility of the law and give you peace and rest. And we'll end with this. Then you can go to lunch. If you are already a believer here this morning, and I can see many of you, this passage gives us something very important to lay hold of and never forget. That it is not simply enough to believe in Jesus by faith and then simply stop living by faith. We need to be ever doing the will of God, ever increasing in our need for God, which evidences truly our love for God. The purpose of John and the purpose of our passage this morning is both evangelistic and experiential. You must believe in Jesus unto salvation And then being made willing, God will do a wonderful work in you as you keep on believing in Jesus for our sanctification. May God receive all glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. Father, I pray for anyone here who even this moment in their heart of hearts, maybe saying, I trust you, Jesus. I pray, Father, would you open up your storehouse of riches to them and may they enter into eternal life by a simple trust in a very powerful and sovereign and trustworthy Savior, the Lord Jesus. And for we who have received that grace already, Lord, in the heartaches of life, Father, may you make us more and more willing to do your will. To look full in the face of trial and see you there. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.